0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Ian Smith. In this month's programme, we're focusing on the issues of social justice for rural communities in developing countries. We urgently need food systems that deliver adequate, nutritious diets for all. And more than that, we need systems that can provide decent livelihoods for all who grow, process, store and sell our food. This is an especially pressing concern for the world's small-scale farmers in developing countries. Despite their size, these farms
1: make an enormous contribution to our global food supply. Farms of two hectares or fewer collectively produce 31% of the world's food and up to 80% in certain countries. But despite their contribution to feeding humanity, small-scale farmers are especially prone to suffering themselves from poverty and hunger. Besides the climate crisis, small-scale farmers must contend with declining sovereignty over their own food and soil, the undersides of industrialization, and the social and political upheavals
0: occurring in many places around the world. In this month's programme, we talk to IFAD's Associate Vice President Joe Puri about how serious the problem of growing social inequality is and what we're doing to redress the balance. We also hear from Professor Ken Giller from Wageningen University. He was one of the lead writers for the most recent of IFAD's Rural Development Reports focused on food systems transformation for rural prosperity. And then we have Lara Gilmour, who started Food for Soul, This is a cultural project founded by her and her three-star Michelin world-famous chef husband, Massimo Bottura. It's all about opening up opportunities for social and economic mobility, while at the same time building healthier and more equitable food systems. I will be talking to the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa to learn about how
1: they're reaching 200 million people across the African continent to collectively combat the corporate capture of their lives. I'll also be speaking to farmers from Kenya and Guyana about how they are improving lives in their communities in the face of all sorts of challenges. Plus, we have news from our reporter, Doyen Han, about the Sea women of
0: Melanesia, who were recently named UNEPs, Champions of the Earth. These are the fabulous female divers who teach local women in the South Pacific To monitor the biodiversity in marine ecosystems. And in this bumper episode, we also have two new mini-series that are getting started. One from the Global Donor Platform, where we're going to hear all about innovations and trends amongst donors in the development business over the next three to four months. And the second from our Impact Assessment Team, who will be taking us through for the rest of the year on some no-holds-barred assessments of how to do development better with rural communities. Lots of fresh news there from the farmers we work with around the world. Don't forget, we want to hear from you.
1: What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast
0: platform. And please rate us. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Ian Smith. First up is IFAD Associate Vice President Joe Puri, who got straight to the heart of our theme for this episode, social justice for smallholder farmers. In 2020, almost 100 million people became poorer, and over the last two years, farmers everywhere have suffered from rising food prices, market bias, and unjust compensation. At the same time,
1: billionaires increased their wealth by over $13 trillion. Jo underlined the need for a redistribution of wealth and proposed actions that can be taken to make the global economic system more just, specifically by non-state actors. She also explained how and why we need food system transformation by highlighting the main recommendations of the EFAD Rural Development Report. Make sure to stay tuned in for her quiz question near the end
2: because food prices are rising and because um, EFAD really focuses its work on the rural poor and amongst smallholder farmers, one would think that the increase in prices would benefit them because they are also sellers of food. But a little known fact about smallholder farmers is that uh, they get less than 5% of the overall price of food that is sold ultimately in markets as part of their remuneration. So that is, they don't very much benefit from the increase in food prices as sellers of food. But where they do get affected as smallholder farmers are um, as consumers of food. And this is why the increase in food prices actually has huge consequences for hunger, for malnourishment, and for inequality so an important fact is that as a consequence of the pandemic as well as other shocks that we have witnessed over the past year uh food price index over the past year increased by almost 30% so it's about approximately 28% as a consequence of this globally 97 million so approximately 100 million people became more poor in 2020 right and Uh, Intra-country inequality, so within country inequality, is definitely then showing an upward trend.
1: Now, with all that in mind, at the same time, over the past two years, markets have been booming. The wealth of the ultra-rich has increased by trillions. Corporations are raking in record profits. So, uh, what should the non-state sector be doing to make our global economic system work for the masses?
2: I think the first challenge is to ensure that there is a focus on redistribution. I think um, where non-state actors, irrespective of what level you're working at, uh, can come in is to really focus on policy that creates systems of incentives that can help to change the way we see product flow as well as money and investment flow. And in this space, I think a key recommendation that we are making also as a consequence of the Rural Development Report 2021 is that we've got to change the incentives so that we focus on decent living and working wages. We are focusing on uh, removal of subsidies that tend to be maladaptive or lead to maladaptive actions. And... um, creating incentives, price incentives, as well as non-price incentives that value investments in environmental, social, and governance-related uh, investments. And in that, I mean food, I mean nourishment, I mean um, carbon, I mean social equality. These are all things that we value, and it's really important to create the right kind of incentives so that we invest wisely.
1: So. You mentioned EFED's Rural Development Report. Let's turn to that. It's focused on transforming food systems and, and lifting people out of poverty. So you already mentioned a couple ways, but give us a few more. How can this be done?
2: Sure. I think the first recommendation that we are really making through the Rural Development Report is um, really focusing on the midstream. So investing in the midstream which is between production and consumption, that's the first recommendation. I think the second recommendation uh, uh, is a shift towards nutrient-dense and diversified food production. Currently, most of what we eat in terms of calories and consume in terms of calories comes from three food crops. Um, and I'm going to encourage your listeners to think about what those three are. Uh, I'll give my response at the end of my res- um, the question here. The third thing, and I mentioned this already, is really thinking of markets as drivers of inclusive and sustainable food systems. I think for too long have we excused markets as those that cannot help in redistribution or those that cannot help in ensuring equity. And we've got to stop doing that. The fourth thing is reflecting the true cost of production. And this links to the market point that I made earlier. Currently, the total value of food um, with, so that's the value of food, not the price of food. The value of food with environmental health and social costs is estimated to be approximately $10 trillion. But the price of food is $8 trillion which means that that $2 is essentially reflecting the environmental health and social costs that we are bearing as a society. This means that there are distortions in the markets that we are working with. And we've got to change that and price so that we are moving away from unhealthy, unsustainable and ultra-processed foods. So this brings me to the, you know, to the end of my response to this question and to my quiz question earlier as to what are the three food types that we mostly consume that's, um, and that we mostly derive our calories from. They're wheat, corn and rice.
1: That was EFAD's Associate Vice President, Joe Purry. Up next, we talk more social justice and agriculture, this time with Professor Ken Giller. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and with me is Brian Thompson. Ken Giller is a professor at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. He was one of the lead writers for the most recent of IFAD's Rural Development Reports, which focused on food systems transformation
0: for rural prosperity. Professor Giller stresses that we need a food systems perspective in order to improve livelihoods. But it's not just about more money in pockets. I asked Professor Giller, what are the main challenges food systems are facing in terms of improving incomes and livelihoods?
3: I think maybe to summarise it in in one word would be prices. Um, if we go to the supermarket the whole time, we see, and certainly in Europe, these supermarket wars uh, pushing prices down and down. And we see, if you like, in farming, the margins on uh, for production from farmers being what we call very thin margins. So the, um, basically you've seen over the past years an increase in the scale of farming across the world, farms getting bigger and bigger and bigger, in order to make uh, a livelihood for uh, farmers across the world. Now, if we take that then into the situation in Africa, where I really focus the majority of my work, There we see, in a sense, the opposite, which is a a rising population, often subdivision of land amongst the children within a household as generations pass the land on, which is actually leading to very small margins on very small areas. And that's really where I would see, out of the analysis that we did for the food systems report with IFAD, that's really where I would see the biggest problem
0: looking more more closely at that research you did for for the rural development report which was published towards the end of last year there, there was a lot of talk of promoting equitable livelihoods what what exactly does that mean i'm sure you'll
3: if if you ask different people you'll get different answers but obviously what we want to do in our work when we're working in a development context in in uh, in different countries. And again, like I say, I mean, my focus is largely on Africa, but but we had authors, in fact, from different parts of Asia joining us in the analysis we did. Um, But we're really looking at what are the opportunities uh, for the the poorer farmers, uh, people with less resources, to actually become part of the broader food system, the broader food chains, and to actually earn what we'd call a, a living income from that. So we spent years and years, if you like, looking at, at trying to address poverty. But we realized, obviously, the aspirations of households go way beyond just uh, not wanting, wanting not to be poor to needing, if you like, more than that. They want more for their children, more for their futures. So we talk around what we call a decent income, which a living income, which addresses the basic human rights of the right to food, the right to shelter the right to health care, good health, and the right to education, plus maybe a small margin on top. That's what we call a living income. And when we look at that across Africa in many of the different places where we've done our analyses, we find a very small proportion of the households are actually achieving a living income. So where we see in export crops, so things like cocoa, we all love chocolate, of course, We see that the majority of the profit in the value chain is actually uh, at higher levels up the value chain, not really with the farmers themselves. And what the farmers are actually earning of that is often less than 10%, sometimes only 5% of the overall value of the crop when it's sold. So going beyond the basic food security of the household, and of course, many Uh, households are producing their own food for their own needs. But of course, they need then to produce uh, an income to actually pay for school fees and all those sorts of things. Then we see that really very little of the profit in the value chain is remitted back to the households. And so when we're talking about equitable livelihoods, we're looking at ways to try and uh, make, if you like, the distribution of wealth within those value chains Uh, more even, more equitable.
0: Taking a a, a longer term view over, you know, the last 20, 30 years, production has been growing by a lot for a long time. How is it that incomes for small scale farmers are still suffering? What's going wrong?
3: We talk these days very much about a global food system and needing a food systems perspective. And for many people, that involves particularly looking not only at the production end of the chain, but also looking at consumption, looking at diets, looking at nutrition, etc. But another upshot of looking at the whole world, if you like, as a global food system is that the farmers who are producing on maybe 10,000 hectares, producing wheat in Australia or producing maize and soybeans in the United States or similar sizes in Brazil or Argentina, that they're really competing on the same markets in terms of prices as farmers who might have farms of what we call um, small family farms. Now, again, I have to be a bit careful here because the definition varies across the world. In Brazil, a small farm is anything less than 50 hectares, whereas generally we tend to talk for Asia and Africa of a small farm of two hectares or less. And the real surprising thing that came out of our research was that many farmers actually have, many farming households, I should say, have far less than two hectares for trying to feed the family and to gain a living income. So this leaves us then in a situation where those households really don't have sufficient land for what we'd call a viable farm enterprise without actually earning money off the farm as well. So very often, there'll be family members working on the farm, producing food, producing crops for market. But there'll also be members of the same households who are working away from uh, maybe in the city and sending remittances back, or maybe working outside the farm in other sorts of uh, maybe fairly low-paid jobs. So the the overall livelihood of the household is actually patched together by a whole range of different activities. And in the way that in the past we've talked about these households as smallholder farming households is probably inaccurate. And we need to recognise this diversity of incomes that farmers have a need, if you like, to be able to provide for the family in terms of those uh, human rights I was talking about. So food, shelter, uh, healthcare, and education.
0: That was Professor Ken Giller of Wageningen University in the Netherlands. We'll be back for more later in the programme as Professor Giller talks more specifically about how we make the change to start improving incomes and livelihoods for those most in need. Please tune in to any of our 30 podcasts and
1: nearly 300 reports from across the world of farms, food, future. In episode 28, we looked to what the future holds in 2022 and all things innovative. In episode 29, we celebrated International Women's Day with reports from gender award-winning projects across the world. And in episode 30, we talked about balancing biodiversity and heard about projects in Turkey, Haiti, and Eswatini. Next month, in episode 32, we're going big on bugs. That's right, folks, we're looking at insects as a source of food and feed. Coming up now, though, we've got some food for soul with Laura Gilmore. Food for Soul is a cultural project founded by the three Michelin star, world-famous Italian chef, Massimo Botturo, and his wife, Laura Gilmore. It intends to shine light on the invisible potential of people, places, and food.
0: Laura Gilmore said that by doing this, they want to build a culture of value that strengthens community resilience, opens opportunities for social and economic mobility, and builds healthier and more equitable food systems. Lara explained to me how the idea of Food for Soul was born, and how it connects nourishing people and making food systems more sustainable.
4: It began with an intuition, a small idea um, that was sparked by the theme of Expo back in 2014 when... everyone started talking about Expo. It was going to happen in 2015 in Milan. And Massimo was, uh, let's remember that the theme of Expo that year was Feed the Planet, Energy for Life. And Feed the Planet, Energy for Life was kind of this amazing sort of, you know, challenging promise. And you have countries from coming from all over the world to one place to talk about that. And Massimo started getting a lot of, Massimo, is my husband, by the way, and we started receiving many uh, sort of requests to do a gala dinner during the expo, or would you like to open a pop-up bar inside the fairgrounds, and wouldn't be nice if, you know, you did these culinary classes, everything focused on the temporary, in that fairground, and something that would be maybe beautiful, but fleeting, and Massimo, nothing settled with him. And so at a certain point, he started thinking, why isn't anybody asking me what I think about this theme, what I would like to do, how I would resolve this problem, or at least address it, what my thoughts are as a chef in this you know, Italian culinary scene. And um, And so he started working on his own and thinking on his own. And one Sunday morning, he said, I have it. I have the idea. Of course, I sat down because whenever Massimo has an idea, it's like, It's already taken off. There's no turning back. He's already going down that road. So I wanted to brace myself. You know, we had um, gotten our third star in 2012 after 17 years of hard work. And my husband sits me down and says, I think we should open a soup kitchen during Expo, cooking with the waste, the inevitable food waste that's going to come out of Expo for uh, people in need. And that was his answer to Feed the Planet. To focus on how we can leverage so much surplus food that is coming out of our supermarkets, our bodegas, our restaurants, you know, all over, and leverage that into delicious meals for people in need. And not only cook and show that ingredients can be looked at in a completely different way, you know, we're all become very. i very used to this farm-to-table, freshest ingredients just picked from the farm and will do with nothing less, especially the chefs. But what if you don't have that ingredient? Everything that you have to cook with is kind of, you know, sort of not-so-great-looking potatoes and saggy zucchini and lettuce that's wilted and some basil that's so-and-so and, you know, meat that's about to expire. But you have an opportunity there to not only use your creativity – as a chef but to show that the greatest transformation is with that creativity and turn that into a delicious healthy meal for someone in need and so um you know we started we jumped on the bandwagon with this idea we're able to get uh collaborate collaborators from all different sectors design art architecture you know furniture producers lighting producers artists Massimo sent a letter to a 100 of his closest friends and colleagues, chefs, asking them if they would come to Milan during Expo and cook in this new model for a soup kitchen. We promised them that the kitchen would be beautiful. We promised them that it would be a beautiful space, that there would be art, that there would be volunteers to serve the tables, that there would be, you know the correct atmosphere, but we couldn't promise them what ingredients they would have because every day it would be different. And we had such an amazing response from the chefs. So very few didn't get the idea that we moved forward. And within a year we had renovated a theater that had been abandoned 20 years ago in kind of a neglected area of Milan called um, Quartiere Greco. And this theater became the theater of life, really. It became a perfect example of what you can do when there's synergy and you bring people from different fields together and you think about taking everything you've learned as a chef, as a business person, as a restaurateur and transforming all of those skills into something else, into a restaurant that doesn't have paying customers, but nonetheless taking those customers as seriously as you, as you can, as if they were paying customers, guests coming through that door from different walks of life, bringing them around beautiful tables in a setting that feels like a celebration, feels like a restaurant, activating the community with volunteers who are going to be serving at the table, the guests. And all of a sudden we realized that what we were doing was where there was no turning back, you know, like this was for life. This was something we discovered. There was amazing energy. Everyone was, you know, it had their skin in the game, whether it was a chef coming in for two days or, you know, our partners, uh, design partners, the artist, And um we realized we were onto something by the end of uh, Expo in end of October, 2015, because instead of, saying, okay, guys, that was great. Six months pop-up. Not only did our partner, Caritas Ambrosiano, want to continue, but the volunteers in that neighborhood wanted to continue. And the chefs who worked in that soup kitchen had so many recipes from the visiting chefs that they, you know, had a plethora of, of, of creativity to work with. So we realized that this project might have legs, and that was the time that we formed Food for Soul, a nonprofit, to continue and explore what the future would be.
0: That was Food for Soul founder Lara Gilmore and you can find out more about them at foodforsoul.it and we'll have more from Lara in next month's podcast number 32 when she talks about the newest refectorios that have opened in Sydney and Geneva plus all about the important lessons coming out from Food for Soul. Coming up now we hear from the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. The Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa works in 50 out of 55 African countries and reaches over 200 million people. This includes farmers, fisherfolk, pastoralists, indigenous peoples and other civil society organisations. In their own words, AFSA exists to fight corporatization of African land, water, soil and seeds, and works to transition to agroecology. AFSA undertakes and publishes extensive research
1: and uses this research to advocate, educate, and mobilize at a global level. I met with Dr. Millian Belay, AFSA's general coordinator, to ask him what food sovereignty and seed sovereignty are and to find out why they're so important for achieving justice in agricultural development.
5: Food sovereignty is, uh, you know, to, to own the food you eat, to, to produce your own food, to own your food. Um, and also to to control the means that you uh, produce your food, including the economy, Um, and also to to produce food in an environmentally friendly way, without impacting on the environment, and to produce culturally appropriate food. For me, seed sovereignty is part of uh, food sovereignty. You can't be food sovereign without being uh, seed sovereign. Seed sovereignty implies that uh, farmers manage seed system, system. It does not mean that it would sh- shut away a scientific, uh, I mean, a conventional breeding mechanism, but we feel that the, the diversity in our seed, the cultural significance of our seed it, it is very much important. Uh, we have to control our seeds. Um, and, and, but we have to enhance its uh, its resilience, its productivity also using the available science.
1: Hmm. Okay, and that kind of links into the next question. So yeah. th- this is not the case in every situation, but oftentimes improved, quote, improved seeds that agrochemical companies provide are empirically proven to be more productive. So how do we balance the use of indigenous seeds and the maintenance of traditional methods and the food sovereignty movement with the interconnected goal of raising farmers' incomes by increasing productivity?
5: I think uh, when you call seeds from coming from uh, companies improved, you are implying that the seeds of farmers is not improved. You know, the seeds that farmers have is is improved uh, because the the context of the the environmental context change, the social context change, the seeds change also, and farmers use the seeds change. So they have improved uh, varieties in their hand, what do farmers want from their seeds? Is a very important question. Is it only productivity? Not in so many cases. They want them to function in different ecological environments. They want them to serve different cultural values. An um, example, a you know, woman prefers certain, certain kind of seeds when they give birth to children. And they want, you know, somebody's, when somebody's sick, uh, they give a special kind of seeds or special kinds of seeds are used. Seeds for brewing alcohol, for example, local alcohol, um, is different from seeds which is used for feeding. Seeds have different functions. It's not only productivity functions that seeds have. That's what uh, uh, this uh, industrial agriculture misses. Commercialization implies that uh, people or farmers produce uh, for commerce and it implies that Farmers cannot improve their livelihood without uh trading into trading through with their seeds, you know? Um and that has its own, own, own danger. Um we yeah, farmers have been trading for the last thousands of years. They trade in seeds. Um, and they want to improve how they did trade. That's fine. But surely focusing on market has an impact on the diversity of the seeds, because uh, they only use certain kinds of varieties for the market, um, they will be exposed to the vagaries of the market also. market goes up and down. Um, and also they have to use certain kind of agrochemicals, which keeps the, the soil. Seeds, the industrial seeds then do not come separately. They come with agrochemicals. So there are, there are a lot of factors uh, around seeds and commercialization. How are these, tw-
1: these twin movements, food sovereignty and seed sovereignty, these interconnected movements linked to, to justice, to social justice and to historical justice?
5: You know, why, why are they so important? I, I, I think seed sovereignty, the fight for seed sovereignty, uh, at the center of it is uh, the human rights issues, the right to food issue. The right to the, uh, to plant the kind of plant, I mean, seeds that you want to plant. Um, uh, that's very much important. And governments have to ensure that farmers plant the seed that they want to plant. But much more importantly, there is a, uh, a, um, the development of seed laws and seed regulations, which, uh, supports the corporatization of African seeds. You see? Um, and they cannot, you know, if uh, they enter into these agreements, like uh, the agreements in Europe 91 or whatever, farmers cannot exchange their seeds, cannot, cannot uh, store their seeds, uh, sell their seeds. You know, there are a lot of restrictions around around their seeds. So that's a question of sovereignty and that, that's a question of rights. Thank
1: you, Dr. Belay. So final question for you. When it comes to food sovereignty and agricultural development in Africa, what worries you, but also what makes you hopeful?
5: Uh, everybody has a solution for Africa. Everybody talks about transforming African agriculture, you know, and it's, it's an outside agenda. That worries me quite a lot. Uh, where I have hope is there's a growing recognition to agroecology, growing recognition to food sovereignty, seed sovereignty. There's a lot of discussion now. Uh, there's a growing pressure on corporates or corporations also for, for sustainability. Um, there, I have hope. I uh, have also hope in the new generation in Africa, they are much more pan African but they need a lot of education. Um, They need a lot of uh, mobilization. So it's a mixed feeling that I have. That was Dr. Milian Belay from AFSA, and you can find
1: out more about them at afsafrica.org. Coming
0: up, we are heading over to Guyana. We can talk plenty about plans and frameworks to reduce rural poverty, but what does it look like in practice? To provide a concrete example of rural poverty reduction, Ian's been speaking to Priscilla Torres, an indigenous woman from a tiny village deep in the southwest of Guyana, just outside the Amazon rainforest. After seeing people struggling and leaving the town en masse looking for
1: work, Priscilla formed an agricultural association that ended up including nearly every adult woman in her village. With the help of EFAD financing and training, the cassava processing plant that she founded has become the main source of income for the village and has been particularly transformative for women and youth. In fact, it's been so influential that people have actually returned across the Brazilian border to their hometown to participate in this community development initiative.
6: Most of my people leave the community in search of a job. And I'm not too sure why that they would choose Brazil most of the time. Maybe because um over there there is a lot lot of indigenous people also that live there. So that's why maybe they chose to go there most time. So this was a big challenge for us. So I we came up I came up with plan. It was very challenging for me at first to convince the people that here what we can do something here for our community we can create our own job opportunities here by using our own natural resources that is within the community we build our own we built our local cassava processing facility and we found market for our farine. and once the market was there that was the drive of the business
1: It's been 12 years now since you started the Agriculture Association and the Cassava Flour Processing Plant. So I want to know what the community development initiative looks like now for your village.
6: I would say that is the biggest income generating activity right now within the community. Where the people are now, we have women employed, we have um, youth, now we have added farmers, the farmers now tap into the market there. So they have. we have open market for the farmers to supply the factory now. So it makes a big difference. They have this business thinking now. So they can see that they can earn from there. Because we employ people there on a shift system. We, we give opportunity for different people to benefit.
1: And what was EFAD's role? What did you receive from EFAD?
6: We've received training in different areas like um, entrepreneurial um, training we receive. We receive good manufacturing practices in our business also and marketing skills. So all these area, all these training areas we received through EFAD Reed project. The, I would say we benefited from that a lot, and this also helped us to boost our self-confidence and also the the organization itself. We got our new modern facility. So I would say we moved from locally from local to modern facility, which was a big boost to our to our operation. And this was our biggest dream because our mission at that time to provide a long-term employment for the people. And more so, the women and youth of Oeta through sustainable agricultural activities. So, that that was our biggest mission. So, we got there.
1: My last question for you is much more general. So, in Guyana, do indigenous people have an equal opportunity to access good education and fair and decent work?
6: For now, I don't think we are excluded, or there's no sort of discrimination with in Guyana here because so the government of Guyana has the indigenous people as their their central point of you know development and so on there's a lot of support given to the indigenous people but for years um, years ago it was not so yes I should think that there are still gaps but um the the, the government is working on filling the, those gaps Right now, we have in some um, smart classrooms being installed in in our schools in indigenous communities. So children can now have that same kind of you know kind of education that that is also being done in in the cities, you know. But um, but we we are moving there. the The government is heading in that direction to make sure to ensure that each child is given that equal opportunity.
1: That was Priscilla Torres, who employed EFAD support to spur forward her own community development initiative. In 2016, six years after getting EFAD support, Priscilla's leadership and determination earned her a position as project leader for a different efad funded project in her region. That makes her one of the only people ever to go from project beneficiary to project staff. Coming up, one woman's story of invasive elephants, a simple solution, and rising incomes near the Upper Tana River in Kenya.
0: This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Ian Smith. Lillian Kiende is a widow, farmer, and mother of one who lives close to the forests that surround Mount Kenya. Before the Upper Tana Natural Resources Management Project, an IFAD-funded initiative, Lillian would often lose her entire harvest to crop-raiding elephants, threatening her household's food security and livelihood. Her status
1: as a widow also increased her vulnerability. Now, the human wildlife control fence on the edge of her farm keeps the elephants out of trouble and has helped her profits to double. Since the harvest from her farm is assured, Lillian has managed to buy a van that she uses to deliver produce to various markets in her county. I spoke to her earlier.
7: I'm Lilian Kende. I'm a widow. I live in Motege area in Meru County in Kenya. I'm almost near, near the forest of Mount Kenya. I'm a farmer. farm potatoes, uh, French beans, soya beans.
1: Gotcha. And, and how did you hear about the Upper Tana project?
7: Uh, We had a meeting with the foresters. Uh, That time, it's when I got to know the Hapatana from the forester hosting a meeting. Yeah.
1: So, one of the aspects of the Upper Tana Natural Resources Management Project in Mount Kenya was erecting a barrier between wildlife and farms. So, can you tell me a little bit about the fence? Uh,
7: It is made of wires together with the pools. It's around six kilometers.
1: And and how big is your farm?
7: Uh, around two two hectares.
1: When you were growing things before you had the fence, there were animals that were interfering with your farming, right?
7: Yes. I had a lot of problems uh, in my area, uh, like elephants and monkeys buffalo buffaloes they were really destroying my crops mm. i had no freedom of mobility in the morning in the evening elephants those were the most disturbing animals in my farm once they enter in my farm they were destroying everything they were really destroying everything so I had a lot of problems before the Hapatana came up with the project.
1: Hmm. Do people harm the elephants ever?
7: Oh no. We never used to harm them. We used to tease them slowly by slowly. Yes.
1: Okay, so now that the fence has been up, I mean how has your how has your life improved?
7: Yes, my life they had changed completely with fence in the fence i'm getting now more produce than before because at first when the the animals were destroying my crops for example where i had to get 50 bags of potatoes i had to get 20 but now because of the fence i can get more than even 50
1: Okay, now, Lillian, tell me if this is true. I've heard from some of the project coordinators that, with the additional income you've made, you were able to buy your own car.
7: Yes, I used my car to go to the market to sell my potatoes like take for the example that I have planted some potatoes, and when they are ready, I really take to the market with my own car to so the fences helped me to improve my my living.
1: That was Lillian Kiande in Kenya. Coming up, we're talking to the Sea Women of Melanesia. The Sea Women of Melanesia team were named UNEP's Champions of the Earth 2021, which is the UN's highest environmental award. They are female divers who teach local women in the South Pacific, to monitor biodiversity in the marine ecosystem, including the health of coral reefs.
0: Our reporter, Doyan Han, spoke with Israela Atua, one of the directors working in Port Moresby. She talked about some problems that her community are facing and what their team's doing for marine conservation.
8: So my name is Israela Atua, and um, Sea Women of Melanesia is... An organization, it's a Copenhagen organization that is made up of an all-female team. Um, Most of the women who are spearheading the team's uh, biology majors um, who have studied, they have a bachelor's degree in biology. When did you first notice that the climate change is being a serious problem to the marine system of your region? I've noticed that um, in my local community, where the shoreline um, used to be as a child growing up, um, this has increased, the water level has increased and it has um, claimed the land, most of um, the land where the road is. So it has definitely increased in level. And um, we have a lot of mangroves growing around. Um, um, The mangroves around that area, when it's high tide the water level actually covers most of the roots and some 10 years um, back that wasn't the case so this has um made me to realize that these are some of the effects of climate change and um Right now, um, as we speak, most of um, the fishermen who go out fishing, just local um, fishermen, some of my uncle's family uh, members, um, they don't actually catch um, big fish anymore. So there's been also a decline in um, the fish population, especially the big ones. And they only um, catch the little ones, which means there's definitely been some changes in the water to cause such um, effect. In what detailed method does your team contribute to the marine ecosystem? Our NGO focuses on empowering um, local indigenous women. And at the same time, um, mm-hmm. we try to create um, lo- what we call um, locally managed uh, marine area. We try to create like a database and then from Some months um, down the line, we go back and we do the same thing. So the aim is to see the trend: um, our fish is fish stock um, increasing or decreasing, or is it the same? Make an analysis on that. So in that way, we can try to influence um, policies around the area as well. So we actually go out in the field and we do this: we survey the reef and. And um, the important thing that we need or we do is we need to make sure that the local women um there that we engage with, they have close ties to the sea. so they can be the ones um carrying on this work like after we leave in the event that um, we don't go back. So we also train um, the local women while we are there. What is the biggest problem that threatens marine conservation, and what can we do in practice to protect them? One of the biggest threats is um, overfishing. Uh, companies I don't really observe, um, you know, roles, and um, that's something that's really difficult to um, difficult to monitor. Um, but otherwise, otherwise, it's um, pollution. Water pollution um mm-hmm. you know from drainage systems on land. Um, when that carries on into the um, ocean, it causes a lot of harm to um marine inhabitants. And besides that, that would be um, shipping the salts that um you know enter and ex exit um ports and while they are trying to come in, like recently we had we had an Um, experience with one of the vessels um, actually affecting, uh, damaging one of the reef sites that we've been um, trying to protect. So because we had um, previous footage and um, pictures of the reef sites, we knew exactly which um, reef site was damaged and we contacted the shipping company and now um, that trying to um, fix that if um, we can also do other things like um, maybe planting mangroves like I mentioned or doing coral restoration that would like balance out um, some of these effects that we have on the ocean
0: that was Israela Atua talking to our reporter Doyan Han And you can find out more by going to www.coralseafoundation.net. Up next, we have more from Ken Giller. This is
1: Farms Food Future. Now it's time to hear some more from Ken Giller, Professor of Plant Production Systems at Wangeningen University in the Netherlands. Professor Gillard tells us now about what needs to be done to start improving incomes for those most in need in rural communities.
3: Um, we were talking then about production growing globally, and that's absolutely true. The, the, the amount of food, the amount of most agricultural commodities across the world has grown enormously. Um, that's largely been, though, to due to um, the expansion of production in terms of um, volumes in North America, South America, and in um, Australasia, for instance. in Africa, it's basically we've seen a stagnation of productivity uh, that is the yield per hectare. An expansion of production has actually occurred through the increase in the area under agriculture. so the expansion of agriculture, and of course then that means the loss of of natural habitat. and Nowadays, where we see agriculture expanding, it's expanding into areas which are much less suited for agriculture, areas with much more risky climates, much more risk of drought on very marginal thin soils. So, that's in a sense why the small scale farmers are suffering because the competition then in the world market is for uh, producing food for the markets at the lowest price. And you don't have the Volumes, if you like, the area to be able to compete uh, when you're actually farming small areas and doing that largely manually. So, in terms of making a change to livelihoods, in some ways, you know, we're we're in a bit of a somewhere between a rock and a hard place when it comes to the situation for smallholders and for uh, households in rural areas. I think. There's a desperate need that improvements in agriculture and investments in agriculture go hand in hand with improvements in the job market. So that means that development outside agriculture is needed as well to provide some of that alternative employment. Um, But that's not to say we can't do a lot within the agricultural sector. And I think particularly the newer focus that there's been on uh, nutritious diets, on diversification of crops, so that farmers and households are not um, dependent on just a few staple crops, is a really important development and one that needs uh, to be invested in. But then beyond that, you know, people often say, well, what's the, the one thing we should do? And, and I'm afraid that there isn't one thing. We need to do lots of things and we need to do them all at the same time. So we need to improve access to inputs for farmers to be able to farm economically and more productively. We need to provide markets to, or to make sure those markets are working. And that's often a lot to do with uh, the institutional setting. so farmer cooperatives and um, helping farmers link into markets. We need uh, policies which actually are supportive to rural development. And then back to what the economists always tell us as well, it's also about infrastructure, providing roads for transport to reduce the transaction costs of of getting crops into market and improving accessibility. So I'd see it as a multi-layered problem where action at only one of those layers is probably unlikely to yield results because we need this more holistic approach to actually address all of those problems at the same time in order to actually get things moving and, and assist farmers, if you like, to to step up from their current situation of, of poverty.
0: Thanks to Professor Giller. And you can see more on the Rural Development Report by going to www.ifad.org forward slash Rural Development Report. Coming up, the first of a three-part series from the Global Donor Platform.
1: Welcome to the first of our three-part mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by EFAD. Over the next three podcasts, we're going to hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. The platform is a network and partnership of 40 influential donors, including international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. The membership aims to accelerate progress towards the sustainable development goals through collective influencing and knowledge sharing so that donors can
0: successfully lobby for policies and increase funding in agriculture and rural development. In this first interview, we're taking you to Canberra, Australia, to speak with Tristan Armstrong, Senior Sector Specialist of Agricultural Development and Food Security at Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Our reporter Michelle Tang asked Tristan about what keeps him up at night.
9: First and foremost, I guess, really are the impacts of climate change uh, and, and how we see them playing out around the world at the moment. So I guess every person listening to this podcast today probably has their own powerful story about climate change. I, I can't think of a part of the world that hasn't been impacted and isn't currently being impacted by climate change in some way or other. So, here in Australia, we're experiencing some of the worst flooding in our history. Uh, We've got tens of thousands of people who've been displaced, uh, massive impacts to uh, natural and agricultural systems, and this is happening as a direct consequence of climate change-related extreme rainfall events. Every, every time that one of these floods uh, occurs in, in Australia you know, over the last five years, I, I hear commentators saying, you know, this is a one in 100 year event. When you start hearing that every year, you realize something is wrong. Two years ago, it wasn't flooding. It was fire. Um, Australia was gripped by our worst ever fire season. In a single summer, we lost an area of forest the size of Germany. Just think about that. You know, here in Canberra, in the nation's capital, we were surrounded by burning forest for four months. We had the worst air pollution of any city in the world for four months. And we're talking about a city that's usually one of the most clean and pristine in the world. So it was a really dramatic and shocking reminder that our climate is warming and it's changing. And that's affecting not just the biological systems around us, but our agricultural systems, the ability for us to grow food, the ability for us to remain food secure um, as a community. Things are bad in Australia, but they're even worse in the Pacific. You know, we are working with some countries and some communities that are literally losing their land to the sea as sea levels rise. These are peoples that have lived on islands in the Pacific for thousands of years, and their homes are simply being swallowed up they can no longer practice their traditional agriculture. They can no longer eat their traditional foods. In many areas, people are, have no choice but to import unhealthy food from far away across the world because there is simply nothing else to eat on their islands. In Australia, we, we're helping to establish new forms of agriculture above the ground, away from the saline uh, soil and, and safe from the waves. You know, of course, the other thing that keeps me up at night, Michelle, is the conflict in Ukraine. You know, apart from the, the direct and tragic human consequences that we're seeing playing out every day, uh, you know, this is happening at a time when the price of food has actually been going up now for more than a year. This underlying inflation that we're seeing in, in the price of energy and food reflects a range of factors and not, not least the, the, incredibly, the incredibly disruptive impacts of the COVID pandemic on our food system and the supply chains that link us all together. So we're already in many parts of the world uh, at a point in time where food is, is, is really very, very unaffordable for, for a lot of people. And this, uh, this conflict uh, and the impacts of this conflict, not just on the direct supply of stable crops, but on the price of the inputs to fertiliser uh, and, and energy, which really drive global agriculture, are going to have a profound impact. Seeing that inflation go up will potentially lead to widespread suffering, particularly for the world's poorest Um, And and for those who have sadly already been displaced uh, by conflict and climate change. So, look, let's see how this plays out. But my sense is that we are closer than perhaps we have ever been in the last 15 years to uh, a major food security crisis. And, you know, here in Australia, you know, alongside other leading donors, we're certainly watching the situation closely and, and beginning to prepare, you know, for whatever eventuality comes to pass.
6: Now, what is being done about these fast-changing issues, especially um, in tackling climate change by way of transforming our food
9: systems? In short, Michelle, not nearly enough. Look, as a global, global community, we urgently need to build more resilient and less destructive agricultural systems. Not only is agriculture being massively and disproportionately impacted by direct effects of climate change, but it's also one of the greatest contributors to the problem. So we need to ensure that we change the way we engage with this planet as a global community. We in the the developed world need to pay the real price for the food that we eat. And we need to create policy settings that sustain productive capacity of the planet rather than provide incentives to destroy things simply because it's making a profit. You know, for people, we can no longer afford to have a short term mindset when it comes to investment decisions in the land sector uh, and in agriculture. We need to be thinking long term, we need to be thinking collectively, we need to be ensuring that the incentives are in place to promote better and more responsible behaviour. We're helping people with more targeted and efficient use of agricultural inputs, better access to finance and improved market opportunities, but we really need to do a whole lot more in that space. And and so I think Australia and other donors are really beginning to think much more deeply about this and are realising that we are not going to achieve impact at a global scale unless we work much smarter and much more closely with one another to see change happen there is also so much more that we can do to improve you know other elements of our agricultural system biosecurity we're seeing uh, pests and diseases move around the planet more quickly uh, particularly under the influence of climate change we have the technology you know we need to share that technology more effectively we need to to work much better collectively to to really strengthen our systems the use of of agricultural chemicals and 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 other ways in which we can improve the regulatory system to protect people and the environment. You know, these are things that we know we can do now. And, and, you know, last but certainly not least, I think, is the huge issue of food loss and waste. That is still That still represents the biggest single low-hanging fruit, if you like, in terms of reducing the impact of agriculture on the planet. And we can't wait for these things just to fix themselves. We need to take action. We need to take initiative. And we need to work together to do that.
6: You are also co-chair uh, of the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development uh, which is a network and partnership of global donors. How does this will complement with your work in climate change?
9: Yeah look as as obviously the name suggests you know uh, here in the platform our core focus is rural development and the platform have been bringing together key global donors for almost 20 years around these issues. Uh, we meet and exchange information. We also ensure that these issues are high on the political and development agendas um, of, our, of our respective governments and of the global community. Co-chairing the platform allows me to work closely with many other donors. A network such as ours can play a key role in coordinating and influencing donor action and this could ultimately make a difference. Not just in my work tackling rural development and climate change in the Southwest Pacific and Southeast Asia, but for all of our members and the work that they do in their own communities and their own region.
0: That was Tristan Armstrong, Senior Sector Specialist of Agricultural Development and Food Security at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia. Next month, they'll be talking to Karen Smaller from the International Institute for Sustainable Development and Ahmed Bahalim from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You can find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development at www.donorplatform.org. Coming up, the first of our second mini-series from the world of impact assessments, where we get to see if we're getting development right with rural communities. You're listening to Farms Food Future brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson with Ian Smith. We just heard about the donor perspective on rural development, but now it's time to talk to the people here at IFAD who look at how to make the most of investing in farming communities in developing countries. IFAD's Research and Impact Assessment Division looks at the good and the bad to make sure we learn as much as we can from the way we work to make sure we get the job done. Over the rest of the year, we'll be taking an in-depth dive in their impact assessments with various projects around the world and what we've learned from them to do better. I spoke to Sara Savastano and asked her what are the purposes of impact assessments.
10: The purpose is really to change the mindset of policy and why? Because when we do policy, we want to know the impact that the projects, the programs, the strategies that we have promoted had on the people, the beneficiaries of our intervention. In the case of IFAD, because we have this unique opportunity to rely on an institution that is focused on agriculture and on the welfare of the poor small small smallholders, what we want to, to do and to say is to report to our member states, to our donors, to the international development community, the impact on the income and welfare of our farmers, on the agriculture production, the access to market and on resilience, that the projects that we have financed in the field, in the countries had on our beneficiaries. This is what we do. And we do it using rigorous approaches that combines data collection on treated and a control group to see what is the impact of the project that IFAD finance on this group of beneficiaries compared to a similar group of individuals that didn't receive the intervention of IFAD but were under the similar condition. This is a unique approach that IFAD is conducting and is reporting this at the corporate level, namely representative of the whole portfolio of projects of IFAD.
0: So. Tell me, Sarah, how are these impact assessments practically conducted on the ground?
10: We use a different technique, but the most important one is once the project is completed and at the end of each replenishment period, namely this period of time when donors and member states finance our projects, we uh, go in the field where our projects have been implemented and we collect detailed quantitative data on a group of beneficiaries. And after discussing with uh, the team of uh, um, that have implemented the project we recover a control group so we follow all the uh, new uh, the, the, the the most important and recent econometric technique to conduct an impact assessment we look uh, at the impact of the projects on the beneficiaries compared to a control group and this is done also in the medical trial so it's a very rigorous approach we collect data on more or less three thousand, four thousand four four thousand farmers out of which half of them are treated and the other half are control group we do an econometric analysis and then at the end of this econometric analysis we're able to tell to our member states, our donors, what was the impact that the project had on the income our beneficiaries, on their agriculture production, access to market resilience and nutrition, which are the main goals uh, of the SDG.
0: Can you give me an example of some of the, the overall insights that you're getting at the corporate level coming from these impact assessments?
10: The main insight is that our projects were able to substantially increase the agriculture production of the individuals that receive the intervention compared to the control group. This means that if you have access to an IFAD project, your agriculture production and your access to market is, has a stronger probability to be increased compared to the control group. A group of individuals that have the similar characteristic their farmers are those treated by IFAD as those as the beneficiaries of our IFAD projects, but they didn't receive the intervention. And this is like in the medical trials, when you have subject uh, individuals who are treated with a drug and those who do not receive this drug. And then you see uh, the impact of two individuals who have the same disease. Some have received a, a, a new drug release in the market and others not. And you see what is the differential impact. And that is how you can measure the impact of IFAD intervention. And we found a strong impact not only on the income of our farmers, but also on their uh, agriculture production. But the projects where, the type of projects where we have the strongest impact are the projects that finance value chain development of commodities, of agricultural commodities. So the projects that uh, support market access of farmers. That's where IFAD interventions are the most
0: successful ones. Thanks to Sarah Sabastano. More from them next month as we talk about how we're doing in Tajikistan. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 31. Thanks to our producer Francesco Manetti and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, as always, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org
1: forward slash podcasts. For next month, we've got a big task ahead, understanding and destigmatizing insects for what they can be, food for us,
0: and feed for livestock. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite
1: podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of May with more news fresh from the farm.
0: And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from
1: me, Ian Smith and the team here at EFAD, thanks Thanks for for listening.